0: Dignity of man. Perhaps the most historically valued aspect of America is freedom. As compared to other countries where hereditary royals rule and the people are subjects and not citizens, we Americans have always taken pride in knowing that our government is there to serve us. In authoritarian dictatorships, again, the people have no power. The state rules all. We mere peasants must be ready to die for the fatherland and the state. Americans by the hundreds of thousands fought and died and lost limbs to prevent the threat of such a government from being imposed here in the Second World War. In 1948, Arthur Schlesinger's book described what we have as the vital center, either a top-down authoritarian state nor the bureaucratic mess of a communist state. We avoided the worst and carefully preserved the best. In America, in the gilded age of the 1890s, there were those robber barons who fought against such things as instituting an income tax. They fought against any kind of government regulation, relying instead on a totally untethered, allegedly free market controlled by the white man at the top, the 1%. But then, with the publication of Upton Sinclair's now classic The Jungle, the need to restrain and have some control over such things as food processing to assure safe foods and decent working conditions to address the then dangerous conditions for the public good. And around the same time, the government outlawed children working in factories. Of course, ever since then, there have been forces dead set against any any kind of government regulations at all, buying into the myth of rugged individualism. Now, both Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt took on the powers of big money, insisting that they must be made to work within the strictures of an understanding of something called the common good. Today, we see a rise once again of callous libertarianism, people against any form of government interference in the economy. Under Donald Trump, this wish for no government at all has had new life breathed into it. They created the picture of a scary monster called the deep state. As our guest today, Rebecca Gordon calls it in her article, that expression Trump keeps using, subtitled, it doesn't mean what he thinks it means, but one has to admit it's a great way to scare people. And Lord knows Trump positively thrives on fear. Actually, understanding many argue is a better uh, thing. (laughs) Americans, for Americans, fear of an ever-growing national security state, which the Trump administration is boosting mightily, is seen as a real threat as compared to the millions of dedicated, kind of faceless government employees. That's Trump's alleged deep state. This group of people provides citizens with a real and valuable government service. Today we're going to look at where the term deep state came from and how it's being used today and... What May Happen After This? Our returning guest is Rebecca Gordon. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Rebecca Gordon is a Tom Dispatch regular. She teaches at the University of San Francisco, and she's author of the most recently uh, published American Nuremberg, the U.S. officials who should stand trial for post-9-11 war crimes, and is now at work on a new book on the history of torture in the United States. Again, her new article in Tom Dispatch is titled That Expression Trump Keeps Using. Subtitle, it doesn't mean what he thinks it means. Well, again, thanks. Trump is a lot of things. And one thing he is good at is diverting attention. In the wake of the extrajudicial, to put it mildly, assassination of the top general of a country with which we are not at war, uh, Rebecca Gordon writes, Nothing better than the promise of new war crimes to take the world's attention away from a little thing like extorting a U.S. ally to help oneself get reelected, end of quote. But perhaps this moment may turn out to be unintentionally positive by drawing attention to what uh, Rebecca called the little-noticed machinery of government that keeps dependably churning on whatever mayhem may be swirling around above it. Maybe this is even the moment to be grateful for those parts of the government whose inertia keeps the ship of state moving, despite the wacko at the top. I inserted that last phrase. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: quite all right. I don't mind that editorial edition.
0: I'm sure. Well, so it seems that there are at least two definitions of the term deep state. You discovered, quote, that the expression is actually a translation of the Turkish phrase derin devlet. We know that Trump loves the current strongman Turkish dictator Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Tell us please about the Turkish roots of the term Trump finds so useful.
1: It's interesting that these two words can carry so many different meanings for different people, but the term originated as historians were looking at what happened in Turkey at the moment at the end of World War 1 when essentially what had been the Ottoman Empire was dismantled. And there were forces within Turkey that had been organizing for years before then, for at least a couple of decades before then, in order to be prepared to take over and to create what became the new Turkish uh, non-sectarian state under Ataturk. But in order to to create the power that they needed to be able to actually take over the government these forces allied themselves with local forces that were basically indistinguishable from criminal gangs so there were narco traffickers there were extortion gangs there were local militias and all of these groups helped to maintain the official government in power but they also in return were allowed to to operate and use the machinery of government to keep their own criminal enterprises going. And so the deep state came to mean what historian Ryan Gingras has called a kind of shadow or parallel system of government in which unofficial or publicly unacknowledged individuals play important roles in defining and implementing state policy. In other words, even in a supposedly secular democracy, you have these other people who are actually pulling a lot of the strings on the outside of the government that are either secret or at least not acknowledged in a public way. And this may sound familiar to people who have (laughs) been watching what Rudy Giuliani has been doing in orchestrating U.S. policy towards Ukraine, because it's a very similar kind of thing. An unofficial personal lawyer working for the president has essentially been defining U.S. policy towards Ukraine and has been negotiating with Ukrainian government officials on behalf of the United States. That's an example of a deep state, although in Trump's case, I would say it's a fairly shallow level of topsoil, (laughs) we hope.
0: (laughs) Yeah, pretty shallow, pretty uh, blatantly criminal. And I do find it fascinating that what you just described, which is obviously quite, quite real, there's no question about you know this shadow illegal government that the Trump people think that's the legitimate state, and the actual, dare I say, democratically controlled uh, things like State Department is not <coughs> legitimate. They call them the deep state. You know the deep state calling the open state deep. It's it's a very impressive use of words. He's he's good at that. So it, I find I do find it fascinating, as anybody who listens to the show knows, how. Uh, it's amazing to me how the ongoing ripples well into the 21st century at the end of the First World War. The de- the end of the First World War, just, it never really ended. It's going on and that, on and on.
1: That is so true, and we see it not only in things like the deep state, but we also see it in the geopolitical divisions, especially in the Middle East and Northern Africa, oh, yeah. where, where, you know, the decisions to divide up the what and create countries like iraq and um and kuwait and so forth we are still living with the results of those divisions at the end of the ottoman empire and you know it's also the creation of the saudi kingdom right we are still to this day watching the results of those centrally century old decisions that were made at versailles you know in the in the conferences at at the end of world war one we're still living with them.
0: And, and I, I saw a video a while ago of, of ISIS fighters proudly waving their flag, bulldozing through the Sykes-Pico line. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, yep. And that's, there you go. And that's from and that period. Go ahead.
1: No, no. Go ahead. You're exactly right. Well, and here we, here we are today.
0: It is amazing. We're still paying the price for that, not being resolved. And what was gained? hmm another question for a whole bunch of shows. well, aside <laughs> aside from Turkey, uh, there's there's Mexico, which is you know just south of our border. Most Americans don't know frankly a lot about Mexico. We have a sort of negative impression of their, you know, heavy crime and and uh, collusion and corruption there. Tell us, please, about the deep state there and the ongoing power of what really is a deep state.
1: This is really sad and it's true in Mexico and also in the the northern triangle countries of uh, Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador as well. There's been so much interpenetration between the huge business that is the manufacture and selling of drugs. So there's this huge interpenetration between the gangs that govern that And the Mexican government. And this happens at a local level so that individual mayors in small towns are forced to either comply with and allow the work of the, of the cartels, or they will be assassinated as happens to many, many small town officials who attempt to make any kind of stand against the cartels. And again, there are places in Mexico where, in fact, the cartels have done the work that the, that government ought to do, and have taken over the running of hospitals, healthcare clinics, providing money for for poor neighborhoods, providing services, so that this interpenetration is very, very deep. And so, what it means that even when you have a change at the top of government, and you have someone like Andres, not Manuel Lopez Obrador or yeah. AMLO as they call him, yeah. trying to make changes in the country, he is up against very powerful interests and interests by the way, that have in their own way been supported by us so-called war on drugs, yeah. even as we think you know that that we're opposing it. So now poor Amlo finds himself today, in the position of not only having the deep state in Mexico to contend with, but he's got the president in the United States to contend with. So we see this terrible standoff at the southern border of Mexico with Guatemala, where uh, a group of refugees are attempting to come through Mexico and to seek asylum in the United States. And, uh, And the Mexican authorities have met them with armed soldiers attempting to turn them back because of the pressure from Donald Trump on Mexico's economy. So he's really stuck between the deep state in his own country and the open state in the United States.
0: Yeah, uh, it's. A, I, I suppose, as, as you talk about it, it's a question of legitimacy. I was remembering right. back in the uh, mid to late 60s uh, when the Black Panthers formed, they didn't have, you know— lunches and breakfast for the young school kids, and they didn't really have hospital facilities. So the Black Panthers set it up for themselves, and they became sort of a legitimate state. And who's to decide legitimacy? Uh, I would think it's relatively easy to measure, the popular support, but it is so fascinating that one calls the other illegitimate. Trump is calling Absolutely. the legitimate state illegitimate. And then there's, uh, you talk a little bit about uh Uh, the Arab Spring. I mean, many, I've wondered, and many Westerners have wondered why the promise of the Arab Spring Spring of 2011 failed. One of the uprisings which seemed to be successful was in Egypt. The people in the streets ousted a dictator. Then Mm -hmm. what happened? What is their state within a state? How powerful is their version of a deep state?
1: So this is actually a very, a very sad story, and it's one that could have been predicted because of the power of the Egyptian military. So the Egyptian military has for many decades been a state within a state. It owns something between 25 and 40% of the businesses that make up the whole Egyptian economy. It has its own banking sector. It has its own business operations in addition to being of course um, a military force. It's also the country's largest landowner and it ultimately gets to decide who remains in power in, in Egypt. It's absolutely true that it was a popular uprising, that it was people who were very, very brave and who risked all kinds of danger by, by taking over Tahrir Square and being there in Cairo for you know weeks and weeks on end with camps and with tents and i have to say that the women there also braved not only the violence of uh, the repression from the government but also sometimes sexual violence from other people that were there in the occupation right. but they managed really and i'll never forget the pictures of those human beings confronting the tru- the tanks on the bridge into over the over the nile and into cairo and they actually created the situation such that the military realized that they were not going to be able to keep their pa- their power if they continued to back the then president Hosni Mubarak and so they basically told him he had to go and they permitted a- an actual election and then they weren't very happy with the result mm. because it turned out that the most powerful and well organized non governmental force in the country was the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood was in a way one of these states within a state that was providing services for people, uh-huh. that was providing the things that government ought to be doing for people uh-huh. and which which was also um had a theocratic ideology. They believed that is that Egypt should be a Muslim state run on the basic principles of Islam. And for people who are a little bit familiar with Islam, you'll know that a big part of what what the Quran is about is not only about how individuals should live their lives, but about how the Ummah, the, the community, should be governed for the benefit of the people who are part of it. So the, the Muslim Brotherhood, won the elections, going away. However, they made mistakes. And their mistakes were that they basically decided to implement very quickly a repressive and theocratic kind of regime. And the people, you know, once you have the people uprising and being in the streets and thinking that they actually have a right to command their own destiny, that's a very hard genie to put back in a bottle. And so people once again went out into the streets, and in 2012, they demanded, in the, almost the same numbers as the people who demanded that Mubarak leave, they demanded the end of Morsi's government, Morsi being the president under the Muslim Brotherhood. At that point, the the minister of D- defense, a man named Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, yes. who we now know as Al-Sisi or Sisi, took over. He led a military coup against Morsi, who was the elected president. And ever since 2012, and here we are now, almost eight years later, Al-Sisi and the Egyptian military have run the country directly. And so what was once a deep state, in, in the sense that you had this whole state within a state that was an economy and businesses run by the military is now actually the state itself. The two have become one. And that is the situation in Egypt.
0: It sounds kind of and, familiar.
1: Yeah. it does. Sound, it is kind of familiar.
0: I, I mean, uh, you know, what's what's legitimate? You know, the, the, the people in America, you know, the powers that be have convinced a lot of people that we are powerless. There's nothing we can do. It serves mm-hmm. the power lead very, very well. But as we can see... It's not true. We are not powerless. We can do something. About, and it's a question of legitimacy and what the media projects as, you know, what is a legitimate government or not. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. We're talking about deep state. Ooh, scary monster. What is it? It's what Trump <laughs> talks about. Uh, Go- uh, Rebecca Gordon's article is called uh, The Expression That Trump Keeps Talking About. And, you know, after uh, uh, Egypt— Uh, There's our own Donald Trump. I can't believe he came up with the term deep state as a public relations political tool. I mean, somebody else must have. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I'm sure.
1: I'm sure it was Steve Bannon or one of his other early advisors who gave him that expression. But, you know, the way that Trump judges whether or not to hold on to a particular piece of rhetoric is by the response that he gets when he uses it in front of large live crowds of human beings right yeah when he gets the response that thing stays whatever it was it stays in his toolkit (laughs) things that don't fly they they disappear it's you know it's an instinctive understanding of how to manipulate emotion in a crowd of people who are disposed in a particular direction and so deep state really works for him And he uses it, he deploys it whenever any part of, you know, the checks and balances that are built into our constitutional structure get in his way and prevent him from ruling by command, by fiat, by proclamation, he calls that the deep state. And, you know, early on, people asked him whether, um, whether or not, the press actually asked him whether or not Trump and the White House actually believed that there is uh-huh. such a thing as a deep state that's oh. actively working to undermine the president. And do you remember Sean Spicer? Oh, of course. Way back when, all those many years back to 2017, he was the press secretary for Donald Trump. And the poor guy, he had to go out there and lie day after day after day, you know, beginning with how many people were at Trump's (laughs) inauguration and going on from there. Um, So what he said when the reporter asked, does the government, you know, does the White House believe there's this deep state, he says, I think there's no question when you have eight years of one party in office that there are people who stay in government, affiliated with, joined, and continue to espouse the agenda of the previous administration. So basically, early on, the understanding that, that people in the White House had was that the deep state was leftovers from the Obama administration. People who had wormed their way into the bureaucracy and into government under Obama, and were still there secretly doing his bidding or doing the work that they had brought into the government on behalf of the Obama administration. And this was what Trump
0: meant by the deep state. Oh, fascinating. So then, you know, it's, it's so nice to blame unseen, dark powers. You know? <laughs> and for your own failures? Yeah, oh, of course. And and the fact that, I mean, what you're saying describes it pretty well. They, it's like they really thought that this would be an entire coup, that there'd be nobody left over. They would start completely fresh and have, uh, you know, that they could just take over the government to do uh, Trump's uh, uh, bidding. You know, just uh, a, frankly, a dictatorship. That's what he likes to do. And, and people so react deep state. They don't trust the news and, oh, mm-hmm. the deep state. You know, that, that's the—that's Trump's problem. This awful deep state that's just getting in the good man's way. Now, one of the first egregious acts of the new president, it was pretty early, was to ban Muslims, along with massive protests at American airports, which made me proud yep. to be an American, I must say. The judicial system stopped that clearly racist assault. My sense is that Trump truly doesn't have a clue at how that our government was how our government was intended by our founders to function. He loves dictators from the Philippines to Hungary to Turkey mm-hmm. to Russia, Brazil. Executive orders appears to be what he thinks the American government is. So, is the deep state to him the apparatus of government beyond his total control? What are your thoughts about this? And how do you think he and his regime see the non executive branches, like the co equal branches of government, Congress government. and the judiciary? Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, we're seeing it it right now in his defense team's response to the impeachment, right? They're saying that it is literally unconstitutional for Congress to take a step that is provided in the Constitution. That is the impeachment of a president when there is abuse of power and other high crimes and misdemeanors. And so essentially, he's What he means by constitutional makes no actual reference to the actual words in that document. What he means by constitutional is anything that supports the power of the presidency, and unconstitutional is anything that appears to challenge that power, right? (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, and in this, he's supported by people like his attorney general, William Barr, who has this whole theory of the unitary executive, which is essentially that uh, the founding fathers somehow intended to have the United States be a monarchy and not even a constitutional monarchy, but pretty much going back to the divine right of kings, (laughs) the kind of monarchy in which a president can rule by fiat. And, so he's got people whispering in his ear, telling him, you know, it's unfair and illegal and unconstitutional for Congress to exercise any kind of power that in any way challenges the power of the executive. And you know, this whole idea of the equal branches of government, it's it's really interesting that a very obscure essay by John Locke called the Second Treatise on Government that was written in the seventeenth century actually ended up uh, forming the thought of the people who who put together the Constitution. Because this idea of three branches of government, which we sort of now take as for granted as the main way that you would construct a democracy, was actually just an experiment. It turns out it's worked fairly well in terms of allowing that tension among those three, those three branches. You know, they say a tripod is the most uh, stable uh-huh. uh, support for a chair, say. Mm-hmm. And here we have those three branches in some tension with each other, which makes it possible to prevent any one of them from overpowering the other two. And this is what Trump understands as the deep state. I want to go back for a minute to the whole thing about the Obama administration because here I think Trump is also misinterpreting or misunderstanding two different kinds of, of government officials. So when a new government comes into power in the United States, there are a lot of positions that are political appointments that are within the power of the president with, you know, the the advice and consent of the Senate to appoint. So we think about, you know, the leaders of the main executive agencies, like the Department of State, the Department of um, Education, and so forth, those are political appointments. And many of the, even the, the next level down of deputy directors can be political appointments. But the people that Trump is calling the deep state are actually, for the most part, not political appointees, but they are career bureaucrats, if you want to call them that, but they are career civil servants who have spent their whole lives through Republican and Democratic administrations doing that basic work of government at a level below the level of political appointees. And I think sometimes political appointees actually find that very frustrating, especially if they're the kind of people that Trump has brought in who have no experience in government at all and discover that there's this kind of inertial force underneath them that they can't quite control because they don't understand what the work is that those people are doing. And so people just keep beavering away doing their work, and people like Rex Tillerson or Mike Pompeo... um, do what they can to denude their departments because it's the only thing they can do to keep control and to institute political control over what used to be apolitical functioning. We've really seen that in, in the State Department as oh, yeah. Tillerson and then after him uh, Pompeo have just you know really reduced the number of people who know what they're doing <laughs> in that department. It and is. You know, only the State Department. It's only our relationships with all the other nations in
0: the world. Well, I have to say that with President Nixon, who was sort of a standard before Trump came along and blew him out of the water, uh, there was the State Department under uh, William Rogers, but then there was Henry Kissinger who was really yep. running the show. So, yep. uh, that shadow government uh, has been around for, for a long time as well, and... Uh, you know, Nixon, speaking of uh, the devil, he, he he set up the Plumbers Union, which was uh, the role to find leakers and stop the leaks mm-hmm. and, and whistleblowers. Uh, what's their role in Trump's deep state? He must hate that. I mean, telling the truth, my goodness.
1: Yes. Ex- well, yeah, look at how he and all of the Republicans in the House and the Senate have spoken of the whistleblower in the case of his phone call to um, to uh, no, the reported. president of um, of Ukraine, he had they have said that this whistleblower is the real criminal, right? This person who revealed the fact that the president was basically extorting the president of another country, an allied U.S. country, in order to get what he wanted, which was help to get himself reelected. And so the whistleblower is the evil guy. But I want to say that even though we have whistleblower statutes that are designed to protect people and are designed to make sure that, that people who do speak up don't actually suffer for it, and maybe even in some cases when they report government fraud and waste, They actually can have some kind of financial reward. The reality is that being a whistleblower almost never actually turns out well for the whistleblower. They almost always either lose their job, lose any kind of upward progression in their job. In some cases, it's very, very serious. So, for example, the man who blew the whistle on the abuse that was going on at Abu Ghraib prison in 2003 and 2004 in Iraq, in which U.S. soldiers were routinely and viciously torturing um, the detainees they had in their power. The guy who blew that whistle uh, had to sleep with a gun under his pillow, and when he came back to the United States, had to leave the town where he lived and assume a different name and different identity because his life and his family's life were in danger. So I think that we make a mistake if we think that whistleblowing is an easier safe no. thing to do it's it's a life-destroying action, and people who are willing to do it are really heroes.
0: absolutely heroes. and yet if you ask the, the average person in the street, what do you think of say Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning? right. Right somehow they think they're they're unpatriotic i I've, I've had people say, "Oh, they ought to be taken out and shot They are yeah, and, and that to me is like what is the definition of a legitimate state you know
1: right it, th- right it's
0: It's amazing to me
1: in the 19- exactly, especially in a democracy in which we see whenever and I'm sad to say it, but it is at this point, the Republicans are in power in a state legislature, one of the first things they do is make an attempt to prevent as many African-American people and other people of color from voting as possible. Oh, so, yeah. you know, we're seeing voter suppression all over the country. I mean, I saw it as long ago as here back in 1994, we had an initiative on the ballot called Prop 187 that was designed, if and it did in fact pass, but most of it was thrown out by the courts, but it was designed to deny any kind of government service to people who couldn't show that they were in the United States legally, that they had documents, right? And um, during that election in Southern California... People went out and posted giant billboards and stood 100 feet from the election booths with uh, signs that said it's a federal crime, in Spanish and English, it's a federal crime to vote if you're not entitled to vote. They did everything they could to prevent Latinos who legitimately had the vote from voting in that election.
0: Using fear. Uh, Yeah. It's an old tactic, and the manipulation of fear really works, and it's— you know, us old-fashioned conservatives, and I consider myself a conservative because I like the Constitution. I really do. I <laughs> to keep it. Yeah, I'd like to keep it. Let's conserve it. Oh, my goodness, yes. That, you know, we, we've always believed that uh, people have their rights, and we are a different government, and we don't have a dictatorship. And there have been people uh, resentful of legitimate, democratic, republic-type government for a long, long time. And they long are time. achieving some real success. Now, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohn here. We are keeping democracy alive with your help. And our guest today is Rebecca Gordon. We're talking about the deep state, what Trump means and what it really is. And uh, I just, it, it, it's really, uh, it's quite frightening. I mean, I remember in the 1950s, Senator McCarthy raised the frightening specter. Again, mm-hmm. there's fear, frightening specter of communists in the State Department. Now, what about that in terms of deep state discussion?
1: Well, exactly. I mean, he, without using that particular expression, his his idea was to create in the minds of the public this picture that there was this powerful, unauthorized, unacknowledged, unofficial group working inside our very deepest state institutions in order to overthrow the country and that these were, you know, communists. And um, one of them was a man named Alger Hiss. And as a young child, I actually lived in the same apartment building as his family Mm -hmm. and knew his wife and his cat because I was a four year old. So I was more attached to the cat than anybody else. But Alger Hiss, you know, and this is how Richard Nixon got his start was as um, a young prosecutor in the case against Alger Hiss for being a communist in in the State Department. But the funny thing is, if you wanna if you wanna think of it that way, mm-hmm. at the very same time a true visible, highly visible deep state was developing, which was what we sometimes call the national security state. Uh-huh. And it was all the apparatus both inside the State Department, the growth of the CIA and the clandestine services, the growth of National Security Council, of the NSA, the National Security Agency, the various branches of military, and, of course, this what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, those groups outside the military that um, that were... uh the the companies that were making their ever living fortunes, Boeing and Lockheed and all of those, on this huge post war military development that began in the nineteen fifties. And so here we have this highly visible deep state and then we have Joe McCarthy saying, but the real danger is over here with these few members, and there probably were a few members of the CPUSA, the Communist Party, who were had government jobs, this is quite possible, Um, but they weren't in any position to take over the United States, whereas right in front of us was this huge power that was, in fact, taking over the United States, and so that we see in the post-war U.S., This complete um, unity between the two major parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, on anything to do with foreign policy, military expansion, projection of U.S. military power in the rest of the world, that's something that really, until we get to the Vietnam War, and even then it was a division within the Democratic Party, you really see unity lockstep on U.S. war-making from the end of World War II up until now, when years later we're finally getting some questions asked about why exactly did we invade Iraq, and what is it we're trying to win in Afghanistan? But for the most part, you know, there's been this national security establishment Mm -hmm. that we really don't have any power over.
0: No, we don't. And And I think it's, it's fascinating that, you know, if you think about real democracy, if... There was actual democracy if, as the founders intended, Congress, and Congress only had the power to declare war, and you yep. needed popular support to declare war, there'd be a lot of people's bodies who are whole now, who, which are that's not That's exactly whole.
1: right, and there'd be a lot of Iraqis and Syrians oh. and other people who would still be, Libyans who would still be alive.
0: But there'd be less profits for the Lockheeds of the world.
1: Well, that's absolutely true. <laughs> so there's and your deep
0: state. That's the thing
1: here you know, I have to fault the people that we have elected over and over again to Congress for not having the backbone to take the power that is given to them in in the Constitution the power mm-hmm. to declare war or not mm-hmm. and to you know give us instead these pseudo declarations these. Yeah. Um, Authorization
2: for the Mm -hmm. Use of
1: Military Force and the the, uh, War Powers Act, which basically essentially abdicate that power and responsibility and give it over to the executive. And, you know, power is a very hard thing to take back once you have given it to somebody else. And... You know, who wants to be responsible for declaring war? Let's let the president be responsible. You know, we're now in a very difficult situation with the wars that we are currently conducting in, you know, frankly, Africa, as well as the greater Middle East Mm -hmm. and Central Asia, if you want to talk about Afghanistan, because they are all based on that original 2001. Yes you know, post nine eleven authorization for the use of military force, which basically only says the president has the power to go after the human, the, the organizations that attacked the United States on September 11th. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's amazing what we've been able to do under that authority that had nothing to do with um,
0: September 11th. Oh, of course, and Cheney created al-Qaeda in Iraq totally created it and as you were talking I was reminded this great amazing German series that is on Netflix called Babylon Berlin where you had this was true in the 1920s in Germany there was the official government but then there was the deep state which the official government people were actually fighting and didn't know about that deep state unofficial government became the Nazis. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's just amazing. And uh, you know, talk about military policy. Trump allegedly uh had a meeting with America's top generals, heads of the Pentagon. <laughs> he called them dopes and babies. <laughs> that might indicate two competing bureaucracies in foreign oh, policy and channels
1: at least. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. And I mean, here's part of, you know, here's the thing. Even the deep state isn't all powerful. Right? True. Uh, no. Even the deep state can actually uh, have all kinds of conflict within it. So, for example, within the military, there are well-known conflicts among the different branches sure. of the military. Oh, yeah. and then there are conflicts between the civilian leadership in the in the um, in the in Pentagon, the Pentagon yeah. and the military in the Pentagon. And then you bring in somebody like Donald Trump, and now the problem is. How is the deep state going to explain to Trump what the actual rules of the game are, right? So the meeting in which he called these, these generals dopes and babies was the meeting that they had put together to try to explain to him basically what was the post-World War II agreement among the Democrats and the Republicans about how the U.S. was going to rule the war, world through these multilateral organizations through NATO, through the United Nations, through the use of... Oh, he has no use for that.
0: Oh, that's just and too, he that's too he complicated. To he it's That's too complicated for him. They're all dopes <laughs> and babies. Oh, my. And then, you know, you talk about the three-legged stool, and there's Congress, but there's also the judiciary. And I've had shows discussing the real Republican aim more than anything else, Mitch McConnell yeah. and those guys. They are determined to actually take over the judiciary that is their number one goal and anytime mm-hmm. you know you have these uh, decisions that trump doesn't like oh he calls them the deep state these illegitimate judges he's actually said that and it just oh, yeah. the power that they're trying to uh make the judiciary part of executive yikes that's that's really kind of new i think it's- well, I don't know. I think it goes back as
1: far as the Reagan administration uh-huh. when you know, we see the first attempt to really remake the federal judiciary, and not just at the level of the Supreme Court, but oh, no. what's in some ways much more insidious, as yeah. you know, is the remaking of the judiciary at the lower levels, Absolutely. at the district courts, at the courts of appeal, where, you know, first of all, those are the people who eventually grow up to be on the Supreme Court, but also that's where a lot of interpretation of law happens. So you've got the regulatory power of the executive, and then you've got the power of the judiciary to basically support whatever the executive is trying to do with its regulatory powers. And it's very, very frightening, especially because under Trump we and you know we also saw it under George H. W. Bush and certainly under George W. Bush for eight years, the seating of the lower ranks of the of the judiciary with these and I hesitate to call them conservative, but with these um right wingers. (laughs) Libertarian anti government judges.
0: Right. And
1: um you know that that I think is going to be the longest legacy yes. of you know and we saw it with McConnell for a year stonewalling President oh, Obama's appointment Merrick Garland. of
0: Merrick Garland. you know
1: Garland right yeah, to yeah. the Supreme Court and this is this is an illegitimate use of congressional power but there's not much that we can do about it except we have to get some of those people out of the Senate And just a little side note, I'm very happy to say that in 2018, I worked with uh, for two months with the Hotel and Restaurant Workers Union Uh in Nevada, and we elected a Democratic woman to the Senate and threw out a guy named Dean Heller, who was the Republican incumbent, and turned the state of Nevada. There is nothing like the organized power of ordinary people to actually affect the results of an election if you get down in there and do that day-to-day, house-to-house work. and
0: You're talking about democracy here. You can't have that. that. I
1: am talking (laughs) about democracy. I'm talking about rank-and-file members of the union who took a two-month leave of absence from their jobs as cooks, as caterers, as housekeepers— To live in an extended stay motel in Reno and go out six days a week facing people with guns, facing people who set dogs on them, but talking day after day to people. And then in the evening, coming back and debriefing what had happened at the doors, role-playing how they could have more successful conversations. And then we had a whole um, sort of education piece in which we talked about what is the minimum wage, how does it affect Uh people's lives, what can a senator actually do, Mm. what does a governor actually do. It was all the things that, you know, you don't learn in civics class because civics class is really boring. (laughs) But it was, and then those people go back to their shops, and they know how to organize in their shops. It's an incredible example of democracy in action. I I'm
0: going back. Oh, <laughs> it's great. And you got a race <laughs> coming up again in Nevada, I believe, this year. That's,
1: oh, yeah. Well, getting and Martha Nevada's, and Sally out of there. I had to learn Eef. to say Nevada because if you say Nevada, you're from somewhere else. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's like Oregon, right? Well, it's like um,
0: Concord, New Hampshire. It's actually Concord, New Hampshire. <laughs> oh,
1: right. Concord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh-huh, sure. Worcester, Massachusetts.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, there's a lot of them. For those of you who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. our very entertaining and knowledgeable guest, Rebecca Gordon. We're talking about what the deep state really is. And there are so many people who consider the news media part of the deep state. Yeah. And they do. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they have to sell. You know, the New York Times did their endorsement, not not thinking about who their advertisers are. You know, they got to keep up the, right. I- the income. But uh, I, I was once telling somebody, a Trump supporter, about something. He said, where did you hear that? I said, the news. He said, oh, the news. Oh, the news. Well, part of the thing is that democracy is tedious. It's hard work. And it's so much yeah. easier just to say, you know, lay on your couch and say, oh, let the dictator, the man on the white horse. People love that. Those rallies, that's what they're doing. They're kind of Nazi-like rallies. Uh, it's just- it is. Yeah. It's scary. And yet, at
1: the same time, I also want to say that have you heard the expression... So Broke I Can't Pay Attention.
0: Yes, I have actually. And there's
1: a sense in which working class people who are having to work two, three jobs to keep body and soul together, who are living really in soul-grinding anxiety of poverty, it really is hard to have the time and the leisure to pay attention to the hard work of democracy. So on the one hand, I fault absolutely the racism and the the desire to have the leader who's going to save us and yeah. all the man on the white horse absolutely but at the same time I think that our economy and frankly our our underfunded public schools yes. have done a whole lot to eviscerate the possibility of democratic participation in this country yes. it's um, it's interesting to hear reporters Go in and they do this thing that just drives me crazy where they go talk to people and ask them, Well, what do you think about impeachment? Well, I don't care about impeachment. I care about how I'm going to, you know, pay the rent. Well, of course, people care about both those things, but it's very hard to pay attention to something in Washington when you've got a landlord, you know, in the next town. And so, so there's, you know, there's some yes and no. It's interesting too about the press, right? Because Many of us who are more or less on the left for years have actually railed against the mainstream press. I mean, I remember how furious we were, and rightly so, with the New York Times absolutely falling in line behind Cheney and Bush to promote the war in Iraq, right? Absolutely. I mean, it was clear, it was right there in plain sight that there were no weapons of mass destruction. This was not a mystery, right? This is not a secret. And yet there's the New York Times. And, you know, I go back to the years of the feminist bookstore movement, which was many, many years ago in the 70s. And one of the things that we watched at the time was the way that the large book publishers back when books were a big deal um, were gradually consolidating into fewer and fewer companies. Mm. And the same thing we saw was happening with the mainstream press. That, you know, and there's a reason why, for example, there are laws... That prohibit having a TV station and a newspaper in the same city owned by the same company Mm -hmm. in order to maintain some kind of competition. But so we used to complain about the way that the mainstream press was consolidated and coming under more and more corporate control. And now, you know, who's gonna save us? Jeff Bezos? press you know the, the, oh God, the no. head of an owner of Amazon who also owns yes. the Washington Post, which frankly is doing some very good reporting these days it and is. so it becomes ironic that we' are turning to the very corporate powers that in the past we might have decried as one of the last bastions of um, keeping well you know the post's motto is Democracy dies in darkness.
0: Right? Well, that's true. And, and the, you know, the press, uh, you know, Trump calls them the enemies of the people over and over again, yeah. which just is astounding. But and they say they just have fake news. But, you know, when you cover the news, unless everybody, all reporters meet the same time every single day every and day. decide, OK, this is our line, they're going to report the news. But you're right. I mean, they still need to make a profit. And, but that's, you know, we're America. We're not, you know, it, we are a capitalist system. And, you know, it's talking about, you know, the real uh, hated deep state showed itself during the House impeachment proceedings. This was a classic example of what Trump would call the deep state. Who are some of those he derided as deep state who were actually diplomats and civil servants and, you know, just dismissing them because of the deep state?
1: Yeah. Well, for example, we had the former uh, the former ambassador to ukraine marie yovanovich who came and who was run out we now know by Giuliani and his cronies because some of his ukrainian um friends didn't like her because she was actually trying to do something to uh actually investigate or or uh deal with actual corruption in ukraine and then we have people like um we have people like Lieutenant Colonel uh, Vinman, who yes. is the NSA's National Security Agency's uh, a- expert on Ukraine, um, and he, or rather the National Security Council, he went and testified about the phone call that Donald Trump had with Zelensky, the the um, president of um, of Ukraine, about. Um, the one in which he said, well, we'd like to ask you a favor, though, before Mm. we basically release those funds. And these are people who have, you know, Marie Yovanovitch is a long-serving career diplomat. She's somebody studied to be a diplomat. She's not a political appointee. And um, Alexander Vindman is a decorated war hero. And these are the people that Trump is calling and vilifying as the deep state. Essentially, for him, the deep state is anybody who in any way attempts to stop him from ruling by fiat. And, you know, we had a former deputy director of the CIA, and I hold no brief for the CIA, but um, he basically... His name is, uh, is McLaughlin, right. and he was giving a speech at George Mason University, and after he'd seen these people testify, he says, thank God for the deep state. And he meant it as a joke, but what he meant was these career people who are doing their job, who are keeping the country going, thank God, especially at a time when we have somebody who is a cross between a clown and a madman run, you know, in the White House. Thank God for the deep state. And then he went on and said, you know, there's no such thing as the deep state. It's silly. What people think of as the deep state, he said, is just the American civil service, the Social Security, the people who fix the roads, health and human services, Medicare. And, of course, Trump is doing everything and his and his conservative overlords are doing everything they can to dismantle the state that provides any kind of service to people so that people will really continue to hate government. And this is something uh-huh. that starts back with Ronald Reagan and the whole Starves the Me- Beast, and, you know, where he installed people in, for example, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, whose job was to dismantle the very agencies that they were working for. And we see the same thing with Trump's appointees. You know, Just un- most recently there's a story in The Times this morning about how the housing and urban development is <clears throat> rolling back interpretations of regulations in order to make it much easier for cities and neighborhoods to remain segregated by race
0: well it's like this uh, is, you know food uh, you know we have we're trying to go back to pre Upton Sinclair you know yeah, no inspections on food the jungle really going back to that and just wiping out all those controls and making war basically on, golly gee, a Republican small R form of government, government that actually yep. uh, is is yep. accountable. It's it's just incredible. Now, Republicans in Congress obviously haven't and won't say a word about this true deep state. Do you see any Democrats addressing it? How well has this the, the tactic of you know saying everything's a deep state work? Do enough people? buy into Trump's imaginary deep state? Or, or do you think the fantasy is starting to lose its power? I always like to be somewhat optimistic.
1: Well, you know, I'll tell you what's interesting to me is you take people who are running for the Democratic um, nomination, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, and although they're not using the language deep state, they are presenting a very attractive vision of government that actually exists to serve the needs of people, right? Right. I mean, you can have a fight about which health plan is the best plan, but they're all, in fact, all the Democrats are trying to present some kind of vision of a government that makes sure that people have access to health care, right? That that is, in fact, one of the functions of government. Similarly, you see them, for example, supporting the and strengthening That collective way we have of taking care of people my age, which we call social security, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We see them attempting to demonstrate that far from being a force of control and regimentation in people's lives, government, by making it possible not to have to live in anxiety about where your next meal is coming from can actually be a liberating force in people's lives. So the whole idea of raising the minimum wage to be what it was when it first came in with the Fair Wages and Standards Act, it was meant in 1938, it was meant to be a breadwinner wage. It was meant to be a wage on which one adult could support another adult and children in a family by working one job 40 hours a week. I, just,
0: and, I, I was just yeah. going to say, we got to come to an end. But I, well, what seems clear is like, you know, the Sopranos or any other crime family, they call corruption anybody that's competing with them. <laughs>
1: you know <what> I mean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The deep state is anybody competing with Donald J. Trump.
0: You got it. If people want to follow your stuff, uh, I would suggest uh, uh, Tom, what you, the uh, Tom Dispatch and anything else. You'd suggest.
1: Yeah, I also have a website called mainstreamingtorture.org. Ah. And but yeah, I publish about every six weeks with tomdispatch.com.
0: Great. So that's stuff. a good
1: place to find me.
0: Thank you so much. Let's let's have a state that serves the people. What a concept. Thank you.
2: Scary monsters.